copies of the Bible to Nahum chapter 3 as we conclude this book in our series on the 12 minor prophets. In the past, I've mentioned that these are uh, verse-by-verse studies comparable to what in Britain are called Bible readings, where the speaker reads a verse, says something about it, and moves on. Um, And sometimes in churches, when they do the weekly Bible reading, like a whole chapter, the reader, not necessarily the preacher, will make a comment from time to time about the context or about an application or something like that. So that's what we're doing on Sunday nights. Um, In the last couple of years, we did cover several of the minor prophets, and so we're looking at another one tonight, uh, Nahum chapter 3. We've already done chapters 1 and 2. So let's see what it says verse by verse. Notice the word that it begins, woe. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victims never depart. Interesting word, woe. You remember Isaiah, when he saw God on the throne, said, woe is me. But he had already said, woe to this country, woe to Egypt, woe to them. And now he sees God, he says, woe to me. It's like, uh, I'm cursed, I'm judged, woe, oh, it's like no hope. Uh, In the New Testament, the word is used. Matthew 23, seven times Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Seven, the perfect number. Interesting, in Greek, the word is oue. And it's uh, what they call an onomatopoetic word. It sounds like what it represents. Um, and so he says, woe to you bloody city. They had shed much blood. And so what he is saying is what goes around comes around. You shed a lot of blood, your, your city will be shedding blood. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the most... Um, powerful empire in the world at that time, and they had conquered so many others. They had conquered northern Israel, not yet southern Israel, and uh, they, were, they were bloodthirsty, almost like brutes and savages. They would torture people and laugh and have parties looking at that. And they were the ones that invented the first form of crucifixion. But it says, you're bloody and your blood is going to be shed. That sound like anything in the Bible? Genesis 9, 6, knowing the family gets off the ark and God says, you know, don't do this, don't do that. And uh, if any man sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. What goes around comes around. That's what saying here, this bloody city. You shed a lot of blood, therefore a lot of your blood's going to be shed. I wonder if anybody quoted this in World War II to the Nazis. You have killed millions of Jews and Russians and so many others. And uh, your empire is going to fall like Nineveh, and a lot of Germans are going to die. Now, you've noticed that when we preach on passages like this, I also take the principle and apply it to America. Think of the bloodshed in America, not only with crime and first-degree murder, but abortion. Do you think our country is going to get away with it? If any man sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Who will God use to punish America? Then he also rebukes them for their lies and robbery. It's full of lies and robbery. Breakdown of morality, rampant crime. It had become not just a dictatorship of a uh, big empire that is bloodthirsty, but basically a criminal state. You know what a criminal state is. They're their own laws. They're corrupt, as it says here, full of lies and 
robbery, a brother from the Middle East described a certain country in Eastern Europe like that, Bulgaria. And he said, the other ones will be dominated by communism or by this or that. And, um, but he said, Bulgaria, it's a criminal state. He says, imagine if your country was run by the mafia. And he says, that's where it is in Bulgaria, that the police and all the officers are just criminals. Well, that's what Assyria was like. So he rebukes them for breaking two of the Ten Commandments, full of lies, commandment number nine, bear false witness, and robbery, thou shalt not steal. Now, remember, this is speaking not to Israel that had the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, but to pagans that didn't have it. And so someone said, how can they be held accountable if they didn't have God's law? Well, they did have God's law. Romans 2 says it's written on the conscience of men's hearts. They have consciences. Even though they don't know consciously, they should know conscientiously. But there's another principle here that God holds all nations to his moral law. Now, Kyle, you know where I'm going with this. You ever read Greg Bonson's big book? He has whole chapters on this, that God holds Gentile nations accountable to the moral laws that God gave to Israel. God gave many laws that were ceremonial. They were only for Israel, but those moral laws are reflected. I see that smile. The moral laws are reflected in the natural law given through conscience and general revelation. That's how God holds people accountable. They have never heard the gospel, never read the Bible, never had the Ten Commandments written down. They are still accountable. Not only individuals, but whole nations like Assyria. Do a study on what theologians call natural law. That's how God reveals his law through nature. It says here, full of lies and robbery. Would that be a description of the United States? Verses 2 and 3 now. And this is kind of picturesque about here come the Babylonians to invade Nineveh. It says the noise of a whip. That's like a horse whip. The noise of, of, uh, of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. It's like an invasion coming in, nothing can stop them. There's a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses, they stumble over the corpses. So here come the Babylonians. Remember, it's in that region called Mesopotamia. And just like in Israel, you had northern Israel and southern Israel. Mesopotamia had northern and southern. Northern was Assyria. They had conquered northern Israel. Now, they were about to be conquered by the southerners of Mesopotamia, the Babylonians. And this is exactly what uh, prophets had said before this, such as Jeremiah. Remember, I mentioned it this morning, that um, uh, through Jeremiah and other prophets, God said, repent or you'll be punished. And finally, there is that one last chance during the days of Josiah, one last whiff of uh, revival. And then they went right back to their apostasy and their idolatry and immorality. And the prophets then, including Jeremiah, said, repent. But even if you repent, the Babylonians are going to come in. They're going to burn the city, tear down the temple, make you slaves and so forth. And so now it's just about to happen in Nahum's day. It's like, I can hear the hoofbeats. Here they come. Can you see the dust on the clouds? Yeah. That's coming from those chariots, the iron chariots. And they're riding on horses with horse whips. And uh, by the way, mentions horse whip here. 
I've got my daddy's horse whip. He grew up on a ranch, and he has this horse whip with a brass handle, and you know, and he knew how to use that thing on a horse. I was afraid when I was a boy I was going to misbehave. He was going to use it on me, but he never did. But horse whip will really get a horse going. So here they come charging in with their spears and swords, uh, ready for vengeance and to take over. Some of them even in wagons. Back in um, Book of Judges, it mentions another enemy of Israel. They had iron chariots. That would be the equivalent of a tank. And that would scare the Israelites or the Assyrians. Here they come in. How can you stop an iron tank, uh, a chariot coming in like that? Horses. Um, horses have for centuries been very important in warfare, even before tanks and airplanes. Uh, for example, this is one of the ways that Cortez conquered so much of Latin America. They brought in horses, and the American Indians said, what is that? And so Cortez, with just a few hundred people, decimated Montezuma and the Incas and all the others that had tens of thousands because they had the horses. And also they brought in European diseases to which the Native American Indians had no immunity. But horses in warfare, that's what's called cavalry, not Calvary, just change of the letters. Sometimes when I watch old Western movies, I wince when I hear them say, here, here they come on horses, here comes the Calvary. I said, no, buddy, Calvary is where Jesus died. Cavalry is mounted soldiers riding in on horses. And so here they come in with the chariots and the wagons and riding on horses. And, uh, and then it says there's so many dead, a great number of bodies, countless corpses, the um, Ninevites, the men, the women, the soldiers, just dead bodies strewn everywhere because the Babylonians came in like savages, just killing anybody. Uh, you remember I once quoted a commentator on a World War II uh, documentary and said that when the Nazis moved into Russia, they just started killing anybody they suspected would be an intellectual or a communist. And of course, they rounded up all the Jews and then it said, but they spared some. But when they were driven back to Germany, they just killed and killed. And the commentator says, they just murdered anybody. Men, women, children, the elderly. And that's what the Babylonians were like. And that often happens. It says so many dead people, they stumble over the corpses. They said in certain times of warfare, there's so many dead bodies. You could walk 100 yards without hitting the ground. You just step on the bodies. Anybody remember the killing fields of Cambodia back in the 70s? Khmer Rouge after the fall of South Vietnam. And uh, they wondered, well, what's going to happen? And, you know, this is non-communist. And here comes in Pol Pot. In the killing fields, and within like two years, two million people were slaughtered. Anybody they said could be a threat. If you wore glasses, if you were a school teacher, if you knew how to read or write, take them out. And so there's a famous movie, I think it's called The Killing Fields, and they showed... As far as the eye could see, like a year after that massive slaughter, skulls by the tens of thousands. True story. Same thing with here come the Babylonians. Corpses everywhere, stumbling over the corpses. Mm. That's what war is all about. And, you know, warfare involves killing at close range with a with a sword or a spear, longer range with a gun, tank, whatever weapon is being used. And soldiers that are there for the first time realize in combat, 
It's not, you know, waving the flag and singing, you know, great songs. There are people that die on both sides, and sometimes before they die, they're just, uh, just shot up. Step on a landmine, they lose their legs or something. That's why General Sherman said in Civil War, war is hell. He had seen it. Now, he was somewhat bloodthirsty in his trek to Atlanta in the Atlantic, but talked to combat veterans. And I remember my dad, who was a combat veteran from World War II, said, son, the people that see the worst talk about the least afterwards. It is just grisly. And so here it's spoken of in very stark terms with the horsemen and the bodies everywhere. War is terrible. Of course, you hear about what's going on in Ukraine now. Verse 4. Because of the multitude of harlotries, that's immoralities of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. In the Bible, immorality and idolatry often went together. This is in Assyria, and their major goddess was Ishtar. And uh, I don't go don't need to go into the details what they did in their temples. They did cult prostitution and immorality as they worshipped this uh, immoral goddess that's being referred to here, the, the seductive harlot. But it wasn't just them. You had the Canaanites and so many others did this, Greece and so forth. And that's what the Jews got into when they got away from the one true God. They said, we want to be like the other nations, not just have our own king, but we like their immorality, and if it means idolatry, we'll do that too. Very seductive, and so it's as if Nahum saying, okay, Israel, I'll get to you later, but now I'm going to pronounce woe on the Assyrians for doing this. By the way, immorality of all kinds and idolatry of all kinds brings God's wrath upon a culture. Therefore, and this is a logical conclusion, it should be outlawed. All forms of immorality should be outlawed as well as idolatry. And if we don't, we face God's judgment as a nation. Woe. Verses 5 and 6. Behold, I am against you. As God said earlier in chapter 2, verse 13. I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. I am against you. Better to have God for you and the world against you than to have the world for you and God against you. Here they're probably trembling. The Babylonians are against us. And I imagine Nahum saying, Babylonians, nothing. God's against you. God's going to deal with them later, but God's against you. He is your enemy. Why? It's a mutual enmity. Jonathan Edwards had a powerful sermon on the mutual enmity between God and man. He says there's a mutual loathing between God and man. God is our enemy and we're his enemies. Remember, Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. In your evangelism, men, you'll meet people who say, well, I'm not against God. Yes, you were. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't bowed your knees to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not for him, therefore you are against him. And Jesus said, I am against you. You need to be reconciled with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, during the beginning of the Persian Gulf War after 9-11, so many years ago, 20-something years ago, some of you may remember when 
President Bush sent in troops here and there. And then toward the end of that, uh, actually toward the beginning of that, he said, I'm summoning all of our, I'm calling in favors from all NATO and our friendly countries. We've given you foreign aid. They've attacked us. And if you're not with us, you're with them. I wish he had said you're either for us or against us, but that was the import. And so United Kingdom, Germany, so many countries said, we're with you. We're not going to side with those terrorists. Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. And God here says, behold, I am against you. Notice it says the Lord of hosts. You say, well, what does that mean, host? Is that like a maitre d' at a restaurant, a host or something? No, uh, it's the, the word for armies, uh, the soldiers. Babylonians had their armies, the Assyrians did too, so does God. They're called angels. So it says, the Lord that has all these angelic powers that greatly outnumber all human armies and soldiers. So he says, and then he says, I'm going to shame you. Lift your skirts up and I'm going to put abominable filth upon you. You you can imagine what he's talking about here. I'm going to make you vile and a spectacle. Verses 5 and 6. God's going to shame them. He's going to add insult to injury that they deserve. They had done things like this to other nations. Goes around, comes around, whatever you sow, you shall reap. So he says, I'm going to shame you, not just bring you down. I'm, you know, shame is a lost con- concept these days. How often do you hear anybody saying, I'm ashamed of what I did? And you ask someone, don't you have any shame? You know, they tell a dirty joke in front of a woman or something like that, and you want to grab them and slap them and say, don't you have any decency and shame anymore? And they'll say, no, I ain't got no shame. Definition of shame is moral embarrassment. But they don't until they're convicted. And what happens when you're convicted of your sin? You feel morally embarrassed before God. You feel shame. You say, I'm guilty and look at the filth of my sin, just like it says here, the vileness. But there's a cure for that. Romans 10 says those that believe in Jesus, quote, will not be put to shame. At the judgment day, we will not be ashamed. All of our sins have been washed away. The enemies of God will be ashamed as well as afraid. So here he's talking about what happens after the Babylonians. He says, now the Babylonians are going to shame you, but I'm behind all this. Shame them. I guess it's time for an illustration I used a couple of months ago. This is what often happens after a war. The, The people that lost are put to shame. Not just their leaders like at Nuremberg, the Nazi leaders were put on trial, but others. I think I told you that um, in the last year of the war, my dad was a spy and he'd go here and there. And one of his duties as the Nazis were pushed out of France was he'd go to the villages. And of course, they'd be dancing in the street and they'd hand him a bottle of French champagne and all this. Dance with us, senor. Oh, your name is Guy. Ah, Guy, that sounds French. Guy Daniel. That was my father's name, Guy Daniel. But his job was to find were there any collaborators, men and women that had helped the Nazis when the Nazis were there. And every village and every city had a few. And he'd go in there, not just to round them up. He's there to protect them. The mobs would have torn them to pieces. And he told stories about going to certain villages 
where he got there just in time to save the lives of certain women that were collaborators. They had committed immorality with the Nazis and drunk with the wine at their parties and all this and, and blabbed on the secrets and turned in the underground and things, things like that. I mean, when the Nazis were thrown out, they didn't take the women with them. And the women of the city went after those women. And my dad showed me pictures where they had rounded up the women, they had shaved their heads, stripped all their clothes off, put them in a wagon, dragged them through the city, and the crowds were throwing stuff, and the worst ones were the women going after them and said, you collaborate, they'd spit at them and throw vile stuff at them. They shamed them. And that's what will happen to Assyria, and that's what will happen to all those that are God's enemies that collaborate with the devil. They will be shamed, but it will be too late for repentance. Interesting. The Bible also talks about another group that has been put to shame. Anybody know what it is? Colossians 2, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, it says he put the demons to an open shame. When he rose from the dead, he now defeated them. He shamed them before the angels of God and said, this is what I think of your power. I like what John Calvin said. He said, the cross was a noble chariot with which he rode over his enemies and shamed them. Same idea, put them to an open shame. Verse seven, it shall come to pass that all that look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? So the Babylonians and others will look on and see and uh, others will flee and they'll say, Nineveh has laid waste. Who would have ever thought that? And that it wasn't just killing the people, but they were burning buildings and went after the capital. Everything was made just a pile of rubble. Just like Berlin at the end of World War II. You ever see the pictures? Hardly any buildings were left standing and some of the ones that were standing were just about to teeter over because of all the bombings by the Allies. It was just one big rubble. But the difference is Berlin was later rebuilt. Go there today. Nineveh has never been rebuilt. And that's what God is saying. It's going to be just rubble. In other words, just rocks and stones and burnt cinders. Nobody's going to rebuild it. No one's going to move back. And it says, who's going to bemoan her? Who's going to mourn? Well, the Babylonians are not going to mourn for the dead Assyrians, neither will the Israelites, nor will God. Fast forward on Judgment Day. They can weep and cry and beg and scream at Judgment Day. It's not going to affect God because it's too late. God won't mourn for them. You mourn for your sins on this side of the grave, not there. Okay, verses 8 to 10. Are you better than no Amman? Now, that's another term for a section of uh, Egypt that was situated by the river, that's the Nile, that had waters around her whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea. They thought that was going to protect them. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Put and Lubim were your helpers, yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children were also were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all the great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemies. Know your history. Before Assyria became the big empire, 
biggest empire had been Egypt. They built the pyramids. They had the Jews as slaves for 400 and something years. And they felt invincible in the Nile River and the Mediterranean Sea. And they said, we're invincible. They can't cross this. And look how powerful, kind of like, you know, we're the strongest. But Assyria later did move in and conquer Egypt. So what he's saying is, you conquered them. They thought they were impregnable. Someone's going to conquer you, the Babylonians. And then we know the rest of the story. They've been kind of like dominoes, okay? You conquer the Egyptians. Babylonians are going to conquer you. The Persians are going to conquer the Babylonians. The Greeks are going to conquer them. And then the Romans are going to conquer them. And it's all going to come crumbling down. All the empires of mankind are all going to crumble at the second coming. God's going to win. Notice it even says... The young children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. That's bloodthirsty. In war, sometimes it's like mad dogs let loose. In fact, there's a line in Shakespeare. Someone quote me where it is. It says, cry havoc and let loose the dogs of war. In other words, let those hounds go in like mad dogs and attach them, attack them savagely. Well, that's what the Babylonians, and that often happens in warfare. The generals and the colonels say, we want to fight a just war in the just way. But often it gets going kind of like a, 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 a stampede and wild dogs and it's hard to control our own troops going in. And sometimes the unrighteous troops <coughs> will <coughs> let their soldiers loose and not control them. Of course, the Nazis allowed that, but read about what happened when the Nazis were being pushed back Boy, those Ruskies, they said, we're going to really go after anything and anybody that's German. And they murdered, murdered, murdered even more than the Nazis did. They were like wild dogs. And they were killing men, women, and children, and old people, torturing them. Terrible, they would guess what they did to any woman of any age. The Russians, even more than the Nazis. They took the men as slaves, they raped the women, made them their Babylonian whores, same thing, the Russians. But notice it says they even killed the children. The Bible singles that out as a particularly heinous sin and crime, like abortion. That would come under this condemnation. Oh, you didn't literally take them and smash their heads against the stone streets, but... Abortion is the same thing. Her young children were also, also dashed to pieces. You want to cut this out, put it on a placard, and put it in the face of those abortionists to say, you killed these children. You know, different than the savage Babylonians. You'll answer to God for that. Verse 11. You also will be drunk. Now, he's not talking about on alcohol, but it's a biblical metaphor of the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah mentions it a few months ago. We mentioned in Revelation, the cup of God's wrath. And says, you're going to drink it to the very last drop. And you'll be overwhelmed like a drunken man that can't control himself. So he says, you'll be drunk, you'll be hidden. You'll also seek refuge from the enemies. And it's almost like he's saying, you're going to run, but you cannot hide. Babylonians are going to conquer you. Run out in the wilderness, they'll chase you down. And that's what we learned in history. They ran out in the wilderness. Help, help, the Babylonians are coming. It's like the Germans fleeing from the Russians when they came in and 
April 1945. Boy, those Germans, a lot of them fled. Let's run from the Ruskies. Let's go to the the West, at least surrender to the Americans and the British and the Canadians. They'll treat us like humans. Those Russians are going to slaughter us. Well, here they were trying to run from the Babylonians, and later the Babylonians would try to run from the Persians. Revelation 6 says this sort of thing is going to happen worldwide at the second coming. People that are not Christians are going to run and try to hide in caves and holes in the ground anywhere. They can run, but they cannot hide any more than the Assyrians could when the Babylonians moved in. Verse 12, all your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Interesting analogy. It's like all the Babylonians have to do is shake the tree and the figs and the apples and oranges are all going to fall off. Um, And that's what they did. The Babylonians came and they just shook it and it crumbled very quickly. They had no real defenses. Verse 13. Surely your people in your midst are women. Not just saying, well, the women's only ones remaining. Gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. In Warfare over the centuries of human history, it's usually men, occasionally a woman, like Deborah mentioned in the Bible, but by instinct, women are more nurturers. Men have that natural aggression. They will be more brave in warfare. But here, the bravest of them, it says, are like women. They become cowards. They don't want to fight. And um, you can imagine some of them surrendering and they get mowed down. They, they, They just lost all their courage. There's no defense against the Babylonians and there's no defense against Jesus Christ at his second coming. The strongest, boldest people will run like scared rabbits. They will become cowards. Archaeology has shed some light on verse 14. Draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the city and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick. In other words, put up a line of defense like the old Maginot line and that's what... They do with a big wall. But about this water, they said, oh, they're going to come and besiege us around and try to starve us out. And archaeologists have found that's one of the things the Babylonians did. They broke a dam and the water came flooding in and flooded the palace. And a lot of people there see in the news recently about Russians bombing a certain bridge and dams in Ukraine. They said, let the water do it for us. And that's what happened here. A flood came in and many people died, just like after a hurricane. But not only water, but fire. Verse 15, there the fire will devour you, the sword will cut you off, it will eat you up like a locusts. Babylonians would burn much of Nineveh. For a time immemorial, uh, armies have used fire as a weapon. Catapult with a big pot of burning oil and they throw it over the, the wall and it's, it's like a primitive firebomb. Read again about World War II, about the firebombing of Germany by the Allies. Interesting. During the daylight hours for that last two years, just wave upon wave of hundreds of B-17 American bombers during the day would b- drop bombs and at night the British by the thousands would drop tens of thousands of firebombs at night. And they were usually about this size here and they'd come down by the tens of thousands and just burn up cities like Dresden and Hamburg. So it's an old way of fighting with 
with, uh, with fire. The Indians would dip their arrows into certain pitch, light it with a flint, and then shoot it, and it'd hit something and set it on fire. Fire has often been used in warfare. Where do you think the term comes from? Ready, aim, fire. This is all presaging the second coming, the greatest war in all human history. Remember, 2 Thessalonians 1 says, Jesus will come with fire. Also, it says here, like a giant sword, just like Jesus with the sword of his mouth, or like a giant locust, armies of locusts. And the Bible talks about, like in the book of Job, the, the tens of millions of locusts coming in and didn't spare anything, ate all the, the crops and the trees and the grass, didn't, didn't eat the people. And so it says the Babylonian is going to come like that. There's another analogy in human history. I may have mentioned it before. Down in South America, there's something called soldier ants. Anybody ever heard of that? Also called army ants. My dad worked in the jungles of South America for three years and saw them. And they're worse than the, uh, than the locusts. Locusts will eat up plants and everything, but the army ants, by the trillions, will come in. Every so many years, they go on the march and they'll eat and destroy anything, and even going after the horses and the dogs and the humans. Go and watch an old movie called The Naked Jungle with Charlton Heston, soldier ants. And so that's the picture here. The Babylonians are going to come in and just decimate you like a plague of locusts, like the locusts and the plagues of Egypt. Nineveh was once a thriving economy, it says here. Verse 17, your commanders are like swarming locusts, your generals like great grasshoppers. But you, verse 16, you multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. Richest nation in the world by plundering. They didn't have much industry. They got rich by plundering their enemies. That happens in war, usually. That's what paid for the Nazis. That they stole the Jews and the French and anybody they defeated. And so here's uh, very wealthy Assyria is going to be poor and all their wealth goes to the Babylonians. Once a thriving economy, and then they will be no more. What about America? Strongest economy in the world? It could all crumble. Verse 18, your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered in the mountains. No one gathers them. The Assyrian leaders would sleep, not snoozing, but sleeping the sleep of death and lying in the grave or sometimes just lying out there for the buzzards to pick. And the people would scatter into the wilderness, as it says here. Your people scattered on the mountains, running for help. Help, help. Babylonians are coming. And they would no longer be gathered together as a nation. There is no Assyria anymore. You say, well, where is that? Well, that's over there, kind of Iraq, and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But it's, there is no nation of Assyria anymore. It's just a general geographical area. So God said, you won't be a nation anymore. Will that happen to America? So it talks about the leaders as shepherds and the people would scatter. The Bible quotes an old proverb, slay the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You remember where that was used? When Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane. Capture the good shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And that's what happened. Apostles ran into the darkness of night. And so that happens in warfare. They want, it's like in a game of chess. You go for the op opponent's king. You capture him and the others are going to say, we have no more leader. Of course, you know the analogy, World War II. 
Hitler killed himself. Hirohito, you know, caved in. And then their empire said, we give up. Can't fight anymore. Our leaders are gone. Our head's been cut off. Our shepherd is gone. The little book concludes, verse 19. Your injury has no healing. It's like a doctor saying it's terminal. Your wound is severe. Boy, this is really strong stuff. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? No healing. It's a fatal wound, fatal disease. The Babylonians will be dancing in the street and clapping and banging tambourines. And uh, maybe the Israelites were saying, yes, there goes Assyria. And you know, in the book of Revelation, they'll be singing and dancing when Mystery Babylon falls. Mystery Babylon. And it says, the angels and saints in heaven say hallelujah and they sing and celebrate. Notice it ends with a question and doesn't give you the answer. Just like Jonah, it's, which was dealing with Nineveh, only two books in the Bible that end with a question. And that's how the book ends. No hope, only doom. The rest of the story is they never repented, never became a nation, never rose again. Nahum is one of only a couple of books in the Old Testament addressed specifically to Gentiles. Now, Isaiah and a few others did occasionally mention Gentiles, but Nahum and Jonah were almost exclusively to the Gentiles. What am I getting at? How God dealt with them is a foretaste of how God will deal with all of his enemies at Armageddon. How do I know? Jude 7 mentions the doom of Sodom and Gomorrah that were burnt up by fire from heaven and says they were an example of what's going to happen at the second coming. Fire, suddenly, no hope, only doom. No hope. But as we've seen, there is hope for Israel. God did deliver his people, saved them from the Assyrians, later delivered them from the Babylonians. And that principle applies that God, though he punishes the whole world at the second coming, the whole world except his people. Well, that's our study on Nahum. Uh, as we go through the Minor Prophets, that's eight down and four to go next week. The little book of Zephaniah that we preached on this morning. Let's pray. Father, you have inspired this rather stark prophecy to get their attention and to get our attention. Give us ears to hear and hearts to heed. In Jesus' name, amen.